God, thank you so much that we can sing those words in victory. Although they appeared to be words of defeat as they exited Jesus' mouth, indeed, they were words of victory. The work of appeasing your wrath, of satisfying the debt we owe from sin, the work of reconciling us to you was finished. And we celebrate that because you proved it by raising Christ from the dead. Those were not the last words that he would speak. And indeed, he sings with us and over us now and speaks to us through the word. And so we thank you, God, that it is finished. We might rest in his work. I pray that we would see Christ lifted up as we continue to worship together through the word and through prayer we might see Christ lifted up in the ways that we fellowship and encourage one another. We love you and thank you for the opportunity to gather as your people in this place and in this time. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, first of all, Mabuhai. Welcome. Mayum Buntag. Good morning. That's Tagalog. So, the song that you were hearing this morning is a song that the actual kids were singing last year during our outreach and was in the Tagalog. So uh, Tagalog is the national language of the Philippines. The local language is actually a mixture of languages. You have uh, Cebuano or Visaya, and you have some people that are from Iloilo, and then there are a lot of native languages that are part of that culture. The Philippines is comprised of almost 7,000 islands with over 100 million people in the Philippines. The predominant religion is Catholicism, and there are very few Christian churches that are there to spread the gospel. So there are a large number of folks that do not know the life-saving message that we've sung about today. When I think about that message, you know, it's finished. It is finished. And indeed, it is finished. But if you think about your own Christian life, think about some of you that have been Christian for years. Think about that time when you first heard, when somebody first told you, when you first understood your sin for what it was, and you realized that, wow, you know, there's no hope apart from Jesus Christ. And then somebody told you about this amazing man this amazing man who loved you, you. It, it gets individual. It gets individual. It's not, you know, it's personal. Loved Josh. Loved Ding Ding, who's one of the kids we're reaching out to. Loved her enough that he died on the cross and shed his blood for her sins. But a lot of these kids, unless somebody goes, unless somebody tells them, they'll never hear. They'll never hear that gospel message. They'll never hear about his love. This ministry, the Christmas Outreach Ministry, is part of a larger ministry that we actually work with local churches in, in Davao and around. The island of Mindanao is the main island that where Davao uh, sits. There's actually this year uh, four areas that we're working in. There are 100 children in Villamore, which is a new area which is an area, uh, some of y'all remember Arlene's mom who passed away a couple years ago. 
uh, that's an area that she was involved in personally, and it's an area that we're going into for the first time this year, that's an unreached area. There's 150 children in the uh, Compasetta Valley. There's 65 children in Maribel and 150 children in Madapu Heights, which is a large, has got an Islamic community in it. So there's an Islamic presence. In some of these areas where we're serving, there's a very Islamic presence, a very Muslim presence. There's 465 children this year that we're reaching out to, targeting, and working with four local churches. But it doesn't stop this year specifically in the outreach that begins this coming Monday where we have teams going out to these areas. We'll be providing a gift, a very practical gift to these children, but also presenting the gospel to these children where they get to hear about God's love for them and a chance to accept that gift, that gift of salvation. But we also work with the churches, and we train the churches, we teach the churches, the elders and the pastors, how to do effective evangelism, how to, to reach out, because one of the systemic problems in the Philippines, are the Christian churches that are there, that are local, have not been able to outreach. So there's large areas that are untouched. So part of that is to train them how to do that and to also encourage discipleship and accountability because we believe it's important for brothers and sisters to have accountability. We ask that you pray for the safety of the ministry team. Uh, again, in, in the light of recent events, um, there's also an APEC summit going on in the Philippines, which we've gotten a lot of word that Right now, there's all sorts of advisory travels for our team, but we believe that God is sending them, and God has called them to go, and therefore, we believe that they need to go. They need to answer that call. So they're going. They'll leave Monday. Pray for their safety, the safety as a team as they're serving. Open hearts of the children that are being reached out to the continued development and accountability of the local churches, the pastors and the elders, the planning of some of the of new churches, because there's some areas that Madapu Heights that resulted in the new church plant. And also just pray that this Satan's attempts to stop God's word from going forth would be met in vain, that that they wouldn't be able to, to come to fruition. And the continued provision spiritually and physically for the team. Um, Grace, uh, you know, I, we, I personally thank you. This is my body. And uh, one of the reasons why God, God called Arlene and I to be a part of this body is the heart, the church's heart for missions, both local and foreign. And uh, I think that's important because we sing about it all the time, but unless somebody's there to tell them, unless somebody's there to tell them about this love and show them that love practically, they'll never know. But let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for um, your word. Dear Lord, more importantly, we thank you these, these songs this morning, singing about your salvation, about, dear Lord, your death on the cross for our sins, dear Lord. Dear Lord, it was a debt that, uh, that we couldn't pay. But it was a debt that you didn't have to pay. 
you didn't have to pay that for us, but dear Lord, you willingly, freely chose to die for each and every person here in this room and in the world. And dear Lord, we just right now, we lift up this ministry. We ask that, dear Lord, the hearts of these children may be open and receptive to the word. We ask that, dear Lord, you be with the team, their safety. Dear Lord, we ask that you would just uh, continue to provide for them, uh, dear Lord, physically, excuse me, physically and spiritually. And, dear Lord, we ask that the church would be strong and vigilant and that they would not drift away. As we've been studying, they would not drift away from you, but remain strong against the attacks of Satan. Pray these things in your name, dear Lord, and we just ask that as we come to this time of the service, dear Lord, we have a chance to give back. We have a chance to give back just a portion of what you've been so generous to us, dear Lord. We have much. We live in a country with much. And dear Lord, you are so gracious. Please, dear Lord, let our hearts, just prompt our hearts by your Holy Spirit and, and let us respond according, according to your Spirit. And these things we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace Community Church yet again. My name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder. If this is your first time Thank you so much for coming. An exciting day. We've got engagements and mission trips and all kinds of things. Josh was somehow in my computer looking at my sermon because he preached half of it this morning. But that's, that's, actually, that's God doing that, isn't it? That's awesome when he brings it all together. And in our happiness and worshiping the Lord, it's appropriate that we are happy in our worship of the Lord on such a difficult week. It's been a tough week in the free world. And the attacks in Paris uh, were quite troubling. They shook us in some ways. And yet in other ways, those attacks didn't surprise us. Didn't surprise all of us anyway. It's long been one of the stated Goals of radical Islamists to bring death to those who stand in the way of world domination by said Islamist and to those who oppose Sharia law, which is an all encompassing religious political system. The goal for some is to have the entire world under Sharia law, and if you stand in the way of that, your life is in danger. These systems are based primarily on the teachings of the Quran. Look, a lot of Christians or a lot of people have based some ridiculous ideology, uh, ideology on, on the Bible uh, by taking a little here and there. But the Quran calls for everyone to believe or else. Terrorism is one of the primary means of achieving the purposes of radical Islamists, and so we can just prepare for it here. It's difficult for most of us in the West to understand how people can be so driven by ideology that they would strap bombs to themselves and walk into the midst of children and, and handicapped individuals and blow themselves up 
and mercilessly, calmly and mercilessly, just shoot one after the other. Pick off one after the other. Why would they do that? Because of a deeply held belief system. Faulty beliefs, we would say, but strong beliefs nonetheless. It's easy to get worked up about wrong beliefs, isn't it? When you say, how can you believe? Look at what you're doing. We've got to put a stop to this. It would be good to spend equal energy worrying about the level of passion that flows from our own beliefs. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that one day Islam will rule the world? I don't. You know why? Because I believe there's a God in heaven who has revealed himself right here. And and Satan will not prevail. God will prevail. And it ought to behoove us to give attention to our beliefs. And our beliefs promote life, not death. By the way, I didn't put this in here. I'm already late getting started. And I'll hear it from some if I'm too late this morning. I I, I don't have time to develop this, but let me just say this. What I, we want our government to protect us, right? We have the right to desire that from our government. If you are faced with death as an individual by someone who believes differently than you, what is your responsibility? To say, God loves you, I forgive you, and die in the name of Jesus. That's what it is. There's a difference between what the state does and what we as individuals do. So, as I've been asked very appropriately recently, if, if, if terrorists are running around in my neighborhood, is it not my responsibility to pick them off? I don't think so. With a gun, I don't think so. I think it's my responsibility... I have a responsibility to protect my family, but I don't wage war individually. This is how I wage war, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Should our government wage war? Absolutely. Do I want them to do something? Absolutely, I do. I want them to protect us. It's a very tricky line, isn't it? These followers of Jesus in Hebrews were not called to politic. They were not called to take up arms against the Roman government or against those who would oppose the work of God? You know what they were called to do? Believe God and die well if they were called to. And don't you worry about the world. God is going to take care of the world. Even though we have a a definite, deep, strong responsibility to take the gospel to the world into dangerous places even. So... Maybe I'll develop that further later for those of you who are still left. Our text today is Hebrews 4, 1 through 11. And at least, like I should say, think about it. Think about it's tricky, the difference between what the state ought to do and what individuals ought to do and how we ought to respond to all of this. And whatever you do, if you see someone of... Arabic descent, do not, do not hate 
love. Pray for the gospel to come to them. You're no more worthy of having received the gospel than he or she is that you see. That comes up again. And Josh has already preached it. As we read through this chapter, it's going to sound a lot like the warning passages that we read last week in chapter 3. But there's actual encouragement woven into the, to the warning. Some of the warnings are written in such a way that there is great encouragement to be found. So, as the text is read, if you can find the encouragement, see if you can find the encouragement in the midst of these words of warning, which... Continue to be, from chapter 3, a warning against not believing the gospel. Look for three words as we read through this text. Uh, Promise, unbelief, and rest. These three thoughts are going to put us in the direction of, uh, of understanding this text so that we'll be able to apply it to our own lives uh, from words that were written in the first century and harken back all the way to the beginning of time. Let me just say something. Another one of those hermeneutic principles, Bible study principles. Attention to words and concepts can be extremely helpful in helping us to understand a text. But when you focus strictly on words, uh, there's a danger of reading your ideas about those words into the text. Even when you go into some sort of a study of, of what the Greek means in the original Greek, what those words meant. It can have a, a large, a, a broad range of meanings. What's really important is to understand how the author used that word in his writings. There's great temptation to read our understanding of those words into the context, especially after we've gotten all the nuances that are in the Greek. So it's really, word studies are helpful, but they can almost get in the way if we're not careful. I'm not discouraging you from doing word studies, but just again, be careful. See what the author is saying overall. It's challenge enough to understand Hebrews 4 with its rather complex structure. And if we stopped after identifying these words, we would miss the point. On the other hand, looking for patterns in any text uh, helps to form a picture in our minds of, as to what the author's trying to say. So after the text is read this morning, we'll take these words and bring, them, bring a little more meat to them and find the concepts in, in, in chapter 3, which will hopefully help us understand them. Uh, understand the text better and get to some application. So if you would, please stand as... Hebrews 4, 1 through 11 is read. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. It's interesting. The writer goes back and forth, second person, first person. Um, he, he brings himself, he says, this is important for all of us. But notice in verse 1, let us fear. And in verse 11, where we finish, if you've got your Bible open, let us therefore strive. It's an inclusio. Here's the starting of the argument. Here's the end of the argument. So let me start again. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. 
For good news came to us just as to them, the Israelites who were in the wilderness ready to go into the land of Canaan. It came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. From Psalm 95, where we read last week in chapter 3. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have not spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fail by the same sort of disobedience. Lord, uh, indeed, help us to, first of all, understand what it means to strive To not trust our own works to be saved. To strive to enter the rest of God. It's contradictory in our thoughts initially, but then it just feels our minds come alive and our hearts with what it is you're communicating to us. Open our eyes and our minds wide that we might receive it. And may our hearts respond to the truth that is poured in them from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Be seated. Aren't you glad I had those three words on the, on the screen? I mean, now you understand this text entirely, right? This is a really... Hebrews 4, 1 to 11 is a really uh, tough text. But God put it here for a reason. And it's one of the great things about going through a book of Scripture. You don't get to just skip over the hard part. So... From the three words of promise, unbelief, and rest, we'll move to some ideas that may help us understand what God is saying in Hebrews 4, beginning with the privilege of hearing God's promise. Did you not sense Josh's heart when he was talking about what a privilege it is for us to hear the gospel and how what a great opportunity it is for us to take that gospel to those who have never heard Therefore, verse 1 says, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but it didn't profit them because they didn't receive it by faith. Is essentially what he said in in verse 2. Encouragement and warning are wrapped up together in this text, but, but the warning is a blessing. Don't you know that the warning is a blessing? How often do you thank God that His Word has come to you when 
Billions have never heard the name of Jesus. How often do you thank God that his word has come to you? How often do you thank him that you were able to process the gospel and to believe it? And the Lord has given you faith to believe his word. How often do you thank the Lord for his warning to you not to trust anyone or anything for salvation apart from Jesus? You didn't have to hear the word that you've heard, you know. And it's interesting, the way the writer says it, that it didn't do them any good because they... Their listening was not mixed with faith. Let me read it exactly. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united with faith with those who listened. You see, there may be a lot of people who hear, but only those who hear with an intention of applying it really count as being those who hear it or listen to it. In Scripture, to hear the word in the New Testament is associated with obeying the word. So, how often do you thank God for what he has done for you? The promise of eternal rest is a delightful promise in the truest sense of the expression. I'll talk specifically about that rest in, in a few minutes. But notice the way that the writer stays with Scripture to make his point. Last week in chapter 3, he went from the present time, which was first century, back to Psalm 95, back to um, uh, Numbers 13 and 14. And in chapter 4, in addition to all of those, he brings in Joshua. He, He goes all the way back to the dawn of creation, when on the seventh day, the Lord rested. Verse 4. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. I love the writer's style. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. In other words, God rested from his creative works. Even though the Jews understood that God was working to this day. In fact, that was one of the big things. Remember when Jesus was talking with the Pharisees? And they were upset with him because he had healed a man on the Sabbath. And Jesus said, my father works from the beginning and he continues to work and I work also. And they wanted to kill him. You know why? Because he was saying, I'm God. I'm able to do this. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. My work of sustaining the world goes on throughout time. So... God rested from his creative works even though he is still resting or still working to sustain the universe and to bring men and women to himself. God's plan is always perfect. And when God rests, he does so in perfection. And he invites us into his rest. (coughs) The promises of God (coughs) concerning eternal life are far too important For us to leave to supposition or speculation about what is at stake. Resist the temptation to say, well, you know, I just believe God is too loving to deny someone entrance to heaven. If they've been so good. Or, my God just wouldn't treat a person in such and such a way. I mean, indeed, God is a gracious God and loving and he causes to himself. But... 
We also remember, need to remember in this account that it recalls the vow that God in His wrath refused to allow the Israelites to enter the promised land. But even in that warning, or that's warning to us by pointing back to that, he, there is encouragement and hope embedded because it says that more and more people will enter that rest. The promises are embedded in the stern warnings, but they are warnings, which leads us to our second line of thought, which is learn to understand the disobedience of disbelief. It's fairly surprising, is it not, that so many people want to separate beliefs and actions. The attacks on innocent life that we saw in Paris this weekend cannot be divorced from belief. Religious belief, of course. And when you see a phrase in Scripture like the disobedience of unbelief, you may be tempted to say, hey, wait just a minute. You believe something and then you choose whether to obey or not. Correct? Well, think about it this way. If there is a God, and if He has revealed Himself in His Word to mankind, and we refuse to, to obey Him or to believe Him, to deny His existence is to be guilty of disobedience. At the same time, to stubbornly disobey God's command is to indicate that you don't believe God means what He says, or you don't believe that He exists even. You know how we tell people, okay, you say you love me, your actions speak louder than your words. Okay, you say that you believe in God, but your actions are kind of drowning out what you're saying. What did the refusal of the Israelites to fight for the land that God had promised them have to do with the little house church in Rome? And what does it have to do with us today? Well, think back. In verse 2, we're told that the good news came to the Israelites who had been delivered from slavery in Egypt. But their response was not faith. Not for most of them anyway. God says, good news, I'm going to send you into the land. They sent out the spies, and the spies came back and said, it's indeed a beautiful, wonderful land. But there are giants in there, and we were like grasshoppers, and they, we're food for them. They'll destroy us. And of course, the people said, no, no, we're not going in. God had said, go in and take it by force, but his command was also a promise. I'm giving you this land. God had promised, and they did not believe. Their unbelief not only led to disobedience, their unbelief was disobedience. So what does it have to do with us? What did it have to do with the church in Rome? I mean, in both the earlier cases, in in Numbers 13 and in Hebrews chapter 4, There was a cost with believing God, a cost associated with believing God. If you believe God, then you may pay for it with your life. For the believers in Rome, there would be persecution associated with their allegiance to Jesus. Besides, I mean, how 
could these Jewish believers, they're thinking, how, how can we be certain that Jesus was God in the flesh and that believing in him is enough for salvation? There's, we've always grown up knowing how important the law is. Don't we have to keep that in order to be saved? Wouldn't it be easier to, <clears throat> to continue to believe in God but just not be so insistent about Jesus? Not make such a big deal about Jesus? You get the connection today, don't you? Most people are fine if you believe in God, but just don't get fanatical about Jesus. Wouldn't it be easier for us to just believe in God and not to be so narrow with the only way for eternal life to be through Jesus? Well, the short answer to that is no. To disbelieve is to disobey. And to walk away from Jesus is to miss God's blessing, which leads to the last point of explanation before we make some application. A Sabbath rest for the people of God. I love that phrase, don't you? Just think of all that it implies. A Sabbath rest for the people of God. The people of Israel were some 38 years later getting into land, to the land, than they had to be. God had promised them this land much earlier, but because of their disobedience of unbelief, at the moment of decision when it was time to go in to wage war with the Canaanites, they were refused entrance into the land and into God's rest. Joshua did lead them in later with remarkable success, but our writer in Hebrews makes it clear that That wasn't the rest that God was eventually promising. Joshua had something said about him that you rarely hear in the Old Testament. In Joshua 24, 31, it says, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. Think about Joshua in comparison to Moses. I mean, Moses... The the people are always complaining, always griping. Joshua leads them in, and they did all the works of the Lord. And even the elders, those who outlived Joshua, they kept on serving the Lord. But this was not the rest, the Sabbath rest for the people of God that had been promised. Hebrews 4, 8, and 9 says that if Joshua had given them rest, then the Lord would not have spoken of a day later on as he did in Psalm 95. But since he did say that today is the day to enter his rest, there remains yet a Sabbath rest for the people of God. gets really confusing here, doesn't it? There are a couple of things I want to just point out, then we'll... Move directly to the application. First, there are two Greek words translated rest in Hebrews 4. This kataposis, a cessation of works, is used everywhere except verse 9. And just think about the author's use of this word over and over and over again in this text. A cessation of works. Anything you can do to improve on God's creation, well, there's nothing you can do, of course. Stop trying to be good enough for God to say, okay, I think I'll let you in because you've been good enough. Recognize that no one can be good enough, but that Jesus has already done the work. Put your trust in Him instead of yourself. 
Sabbatismus, a Sabbath celebration with festive joy, is used in verse 9. And it refers to a Sabbath celebration complete with joyous festivity. Festivity, a Sabbath established by the Lord himself. So is the Sabbath rest spoken of here future? Or is it a present rest as long as we're resting in Jesus? Or is it like so many other aspects of our salvation in Christ? It's an already not yet. We enjoy the benefits of the Sabbath rest now, but we're really going to enjoy them later. You're going to be surprised when I say that if it's one of those things, is it present rest, future rest, or is it both? You're going to be surprised that I say more than likely, if if you have to stick with one, it's going to be the future rest. He's talking about the day is coming where life is going to be unbelievable. Your responsibility is to believe God and to persevere. You will see that rest if you continue to believe in Jesus and you persevere. It's hard to imagine though, and indeed some of the language indicates that that resting in Jesus does have current implications. And so with that in mind, let's think about what it means to rest in Jesus. First, trust God's promises above your own feelings. Some of you... Um, think with your feelings. Others feel with your mind, I suppose. But we tend to be a feeling people, don't we? Some of the things that happen now are just amazing. Look, I was never a, a hugger before I came to Grace Community Church. I did not realize what a hugging, mugging place this was, you know. But, and it has continued. Uh, when I was at Team Valley Ranch, you know, I was like, oh, hey, how are you? Good to see you. Nice to meet you, you know. Hey, like that. And now here it's, I mean, when I grew up, my family, uh, my dad would be out on the tobacco market for two or three weeks, come in, and there was a great deal of love in our home, but it was not expressed physically, you know. It was like he'd come in and maybe kiss my mom. She wouldn't get up from the chair. She would just, and it was, there's love, but it wasn't that kind of, that kind of business. And then I married Linda Fail and her family. I mean, if somebody's going to the store for bread, it's like, oh, let's, let's pray, let's pray. Oh, come you know, oh, honey, be safe, you know. For those two blocks, okay. So, but listen, we've all become the fails now, you know. We're just all hugging and we love. And, and our feelings are so important that students rarely receive lower than a B on any of the work that they do. Well, through high school at least, a handful of college profs hold out, but good luck with that. I mean, we're so committed to feelings that everyone gets a trophy, and that's a good thing, isn't it? Because that's the way life works. There's a trophy for everybody, just waiting. We're so concerned about others' feelings that if they say, so wait a minute, are you trying to say that if I don't believe in Jesus, I'll go to hell? Even though I'm a good person and this bum over here that just professes Christ goes to heaven and I don't? We're tempted to say, no, 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 I would never say that. When it's exactly what you believe. 
But you don't want to hurt someone's feelings. And you don't want somebody to feel badly about you. I'm not suggesting that's a good way to witness, folks, okay? I tried that right after I first got saved. You know, if you believe that, you'll go to hell, you know. And it's, it didn't work too well, I can, can tell you. But be honest about what you believe, especially if you're asked. And our feelings can work against us as well, just as they worked against the Israelites who refused to obey God out of fear of man. Here are some of the ways that our fears work against us. See if you've ever had any of these kinds of feelings. I'm just not sure, I'm just not sure that believing in Jesus is enough. I better make sure that I'm a good person so that God will accept me when I get to heaven. I've been misrepresented here. I better speak up for myself and defend myself. I just don't think I'll ever be able to overcome this sin. I mean, I feel like a slave. I just don't know how to quit. If I tell my true beliefs, people might mock me. I mean, it seems better in the long run to remain silent and even deny my faith if... By speaking out, it's going to embarrass others as well as me. I mean, I don't, want to, I don't want this conversation to be awkward. Everything's going so great. Now somebody's asked me, what do you believe? I mean, I feel like if I can get just this one thing, if I can just get this one thing out of my system, then I'm going to be able to change my behavior. Just, just, just one more drink. Just one more time on, online. Just one more this. Just one more that. Or if I can get this one thing settled, if I can just be done with this big issue in my life, I'm going to be better. You can add to that list many, many times more. What should you do when your feelings threaten to hinder your relationship with God? Believe God's promises. What promises? The promises that are in His Word. A whole message about that next week. He's promised that if you've repented of your sin and you believe in Jesus, you will live eternally with Him. He's also promised that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Not only that, you're united with Christ. It was on the screen this morning. If you were paying attention, Romans 6.4, we're united with Christ. We're buried with Him by baptism into death and raised to walk in newness of life. We're promised that because of our being united with Christ, that we don't have to sin. But because we will all sin until the day we see Jesus, we are promised that when we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sanctification or becoming more like Jesus through spiritual growth is every bit as much His work as salvation is. Our job is to believe. All of it. Believe all of Scripture. And then you become more like Jesus. Not by, oh, oh, I'm so upset with myself. I need to do better. I understand that feeling. It can almost be counterproductive. Just say, Lord, you've told me who I am. I am also so grateful that you forgive me. Please forgive me. I confess, I acknowledge my sin to be exactly what you say it is. My heart is to serve you, to love you. Open your word to me. Show me Jesus in your word. And as you spend time in the word, you become like him.
Taking God at his word frees us from the deceitfulness of our own thinking about the world. And it frees us from cultural pressure to conform to thoughts and practices that clearly disobey God's will. Our allegiance is to Jesus above all. And it's impossible to obey God if in order to determine exactly how you're going to think and exactly what you're going to believe and how you're going to... You have to consult the academic journals or TMZ or your innermost thoughts. That's not going to get you where you need to go. You must be in the Word and trust God above your feelings by knowing Him in his word, and then you'll have much less trouble with the second point of application, which is to learn to fear the Lord in the way he commands. In Hebrews, the author moves quickly and freely between stern warning about rejecting Jesus or against rejecting Jesus and strong encouragement to persevere in the faith. Remember how this section started and ended? Let us fear, lest some seem to have failed to enter his rest. Strive. To enter his rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Remember, and by the way, putting that on both ends of this section just strengthens the emphasis on the importance of believing. Remember, Hebrews was written to those who professed Christ. So this book is written to us. When he says, warning... Don't mess around with this. This is written to people who profess Christ. In the gospel-saturated culture that Grace Community abides and exists along with many other like-minded churches, there's a tendency to overlook sin or excuse all sin, overlook obedience, and to assume more than Scripture does about a person's relationship with God when there's really little fruit to accompany one's profession. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, well, I, I know he made a profession of faith when he was 8 or when he was 12. You know what? You know what that's equivalent to? Well, he was baptized as a baby. That's what that's equivalent to. It doesn't mean much. If there's just absolutely nothing there, Hebrews is saying, beware. This is serious business. It's it's something we cannot take for granted. One of the reasons we're reluctant to express deep spiritual concern for others is that so many of us have church experiences in our past that were anything but grace-filled. You know, one of the reasons... at, At different times, you may have missed church quite a few times in a row. And you may wonder, wonder why Brad hadn't called me to ask where I've been. Because all my Christian life, uh, we missed you last Sunday. As Where were you? And I just almost have an aversion to that, you know. And so consequently, I can fall down on my responsibility to, to reach out to you because I don't want to seem to be anything but grace-filled. But it's absurd to think that because God's grace has been extended to us, then we can just keep on sinning, living any way that we want to. 
The warnings in Hebrews against taking any of this lightly will be equally, if not more severe, as we continue our trek through Hebrews. Chapter 6, chapter 10. These are tough spots. Learn to fear God in the ways that he, is com- he commands in his word. Oddly enough, if we fear God in the ways that he requires, then we have nothing to fear from him. It's just like a child honors and loves and respects his parents who love him or her and yet have boundaries that are clearly defined and consequences that accompany the, the stepping across of those boundaries. You all do it perfect, parents. I'm I'm sure you do. That's a hard one, isn't it? But God is the perfect parent. And if we fear him in the ways that we should, we have nothing to be afraid of. In fact, accept the truth of this final point of application. Remember that full rest will be yours in the end. God's pattern for his creation of six days labor and one day rest is breathtakingly beautiful. So let me ask you, how much rest do you take in seven days? How much festive joy is in your home because you have taken time to rest and enjoy the Lord? We are no longer commanded to keep the Sabbath in the strict ways of the old covenant and do not let anybody tell you that it is is an absolute must in your new covenant life to keep the Sabbath. It very easily, very quickly goes into works if you're trying to keep the Sabbath in order to please the Lord so that you won't be in trouble with Him when He has not commanded it in the New Testament. Again, another one of those things that we could have talked about for a long time and maybe I will talk about it some way. But listen... That does not negate the fact that all of us would be blessed beyond measure and benefit if we would practice God's pattern of Sabbath rest and build that into our lives. Whether it's at the end of the week or some other time at the week when it's convenient. I mean, the Sabbath rest that is promised in Hebrews, the rest that is promised for the future will be glorious as creation is restored to its original design. But for now, stay diligent in your pursuit of Christ. One of these days you're going to be able to rest at the, at the end. You don't have to do this literally, but just look around at the... Senior adults who are part of this body. This past week, Jim Aycock turned 89. He's been trying for a long time to catch Kathleen, but I don't believe he's going to do it, Kathleen. I, 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 my money's on you. Uh, both of those guys look barely out of teenage years, but when you see the seniors in our congregation and man I could point to one after another you know what you're seeing you're seeing people who are finishing well you know what that is rare I used to think come on so many of the and you go to some churches and I saw you see a senior citizens and you say well the young ones have really gone off you know the reality is That it's easier for the young to be passionate and following Christ. Those who are serving the Lord are all the way there. But the older you go, the longer you go in this life, the harder it is. You've you've seen a lot of sorrow and pain. 
And the temptation to bitterness. Or just an overwhelming deep sadness becomes greater. It gets lonelier too as you get older. It shouldn't, but it does. Hebrews 4, among other things, reminds us to persevere and to remember that we can rest in the end. So let me take this just as a a moment. On Tuesday morning, December 8th, we're going to have our, our first senior ministry meeting here at Grace. We may actually come up with a name for it. If you are, we've just set up a number of 68. Uh, if you're 68 and above, if you're a few years younger than that and you want to get on, we'd love for you to be here on December 8th at 9.30 in the morning. We're going to have coffee and pastries. We set it at 68 because, you know, you've been taking senior citizen discounts since you were 50, but somehow it's offensive to say you're a senior if you're 65 because the 65, you know, is the new 45. But, you know, if you get over yourself, come and join us if you would at... Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. If you're 60 and above, come on. And some people will be here to help be a part of that ministry. There are two things that we want to know. One, how can we make sure that your needs are being met? Your your, your needs and your concerns are, are being addressed. And we also want to know how it is that we can help you to be the in the vital role that God has placed you in our In our church, it's just not right. It's not right for any of us if our seniors really don't have a say in what's going on. They would have been the people to have the most say up until the 1960s. And then life changed. And it's changing even more now. But God's design is for them to have a huge role in our lives. Let's make it happen. I know the temptation, seniors, to back away, but I also know that God has called us in Hebrews to persevere to the end, making the most of our time here. You can rest at the end. But there's promised rest in the present for those who trust in Jesus. As the worship team comes, I want us to close just by absorbing this beautiful promise in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You just got to believe that for it to be true. Because there's a lot about the Christian life that's hard. There's a lot in which we're told to persevere. Jesus said it over and over. But when he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is life, it's because we believe, we just believe what he says. And that faith, that trust changes our lives. Father, we recognize how easy it is to believe our own heads our own emotions. In fact, we're pretty much dominated by what we think and what we feel. Lord, give us the faith to believe. I believe, help my unbelief. Do for us what only you can do.
Drive us to your word. Drive us to you in prayer. As Jesus said, you think you find eternal life just in knowing the scriptures, but they point to me. May we see Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Would you stand, please? Revelation 22, verses 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Thank you.